0: following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. We're in James chapter 4, everybody, this morning. So, James chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Right, better just grab my Bible. That could be helpful. Now, those of you that know me, you know that I am by nature a bit of a structure person. I'm, I'm a planner by nature, so I, I like order in my life. I like a, you know, a fair amount of order and structure. I like a schedule, I like to know what's happening, I like to know what we're doing and what's coming next. I like a plan. Uh, if I don't have structure, a reasonable amount of structure in my life, I kind of feel like I'm free falling, and I just freak out. I'm just, so I'm, I'm just—that's that's who I am. I'm kind of a structure person. I remember early in our marriage, Anna and I—we had a Saturday and we had all these jobs to do, had a whole list of jobs, and I'd just been on a time management course with my work, so I knew exactly how to how to deal with this. And I said, um, "Let's so let's make a list of the jobs that we need to do," and so we made this list, wrote them all down. And uh, then I said, now what we need to do is assign either A, B, or C to these various jobs. A are jobs that have to be done today, Uh, B are jobs that could be done today, C are jobs that will not lose any value if they're not done today. So Anna was a bit reluctant, but she agreed, and we we assigned A's and B's and C's to our list of things that needed to be done. And then I said, now we need to create a sub-ranking system (laughs) So, within the A category, if we can number them off, A1, A2, A3, in order of priority importance, and then uh, in the B category, B1, B2, B3, and so on, and then we'll come up with the perfect list uh, of all the jobs that need to be done today and in what order they need to be done. And I think it was at that moment that Anna realized who she'd married. (laughs) This freak of nature. And uh, it probably took us longer to make the list than it did to do any of the jobs on the list. Uh, but I've mellowed over the years. You'll be pleased to know I've mellowed out. Uh, I've chilled out a little bit, but I'm still kind of a structure person by nature. That's just who I am. So i got to admit, when I come to James 4, uh, and this passage Emily's just read, I find it a little bit uncomfortable, um, and maybe that's just my personality. It raises some difficult questions for me. It kind of pushes against my nature a little bit. It raises these uncomfortable questions for some of us, doesn't it, about how... Much we should plan for our future? How do we approach our future as Christians? How how do we balance between being planned and being thought out, but also trusting God and being open and being responsive to His Spirit? Is it okay for a Christian to make a 10 year plan? Is it okay for a Christian to have life goals? Is it okay to make a financial plan? Is it okay to save up assets for your retirement? Are these things compatible with Christian faith? Uh, or is that somehow compromising faith in God? These are, these are difficult questions. And these are questions that Christians have wrestled with for a long, long time, for millennia. These are questions obviously people were wrestling with back in James's day. Uh, and that's why he writes this passage, to speak into these issues around how we approach our future. How we plan for our future in a way that is honoring to God, faithful to God, and honoring to others as well. How do we balance this between being responsible, being wise, being diligent, and yet being trusting of God, open, faithful, responsive to his spirit? How do you strike that balance in life? That's what James is getting at. So the particular example that he gives us in this passage, and the people that he's honing in on, are merchants and traders. This is the example that he uses. So these these merchants and traders that travel around importing and exporting goods. And, and the Roman world, we've got to remember the world James is writing to, it's the first century. It's the world of the Roman Empire. This is an empire that was built on trade. Uh, it, it flourished because you've got this huge empire that spanned the whole Mediterranean region and beyond. And having such a unified Empire meant that international trade was easy across cities and countries and so on because it was all part of the empire And so trade international trade flourished during this era And you have this whole class this whole industry of international traders and merchants who would travel around Go from city to city country to country and they would they would do exactly what people do today They would locally source products in a particular area where they were plentiful and could be bought cheaply and they would set up a supply chain into another city, into another country, and bring those goods into a market where they couldn't be as easily sourced and found and supplied. And people would trade all kinds of things. I mean, you name it, that wine, food, livestock, uh, woods, precious metal, stones and gems and incense, even human slaves. There was a huge slave trade in the Roman Empire. So all sorts of goods and services and people were constantly moving around the empire. And this was facilitated by merchants and traders. And James is talking about a particular bunch of people who are saying, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city or that city and we'll spend a year there probably in some kind of export, import kind of business, and we'll carry on business, we'll make a profit. These guys are driven by the profit motive. That's why people did this, of course. They were making money. They were driven by profit, much like today. So in a lot of ways, this this kind of economic behavior is, is quite similar to the way a lot of people live and act today. This is exactly the same kind of thing. I mean, the context is different, the cultures different, the kinds of goods and services are different. I mean, we, we trade things that are not even tangible today. We can tra- trade things that don't even exist yet today. Uh, but the fundamentals of international trade and commerce, it, it's just as it was in James's day. And many of you are doing exactly the same kinds of things that James is talking about. You travel with business. You travel with work, right? You travel to this city, that city, uh, either with your own business or with the business you work for. Spend some time there, carry on your business, you make money, you make profit. This is just how life works. It's the the fundamentals of international commerce, economic trade, right? And yet, these people that James is writing to, they come in for a fair bit of criticism here. I mean, he calls them arrogant. He calls them boastful. He describes their behavior as evil and sinful. So what's going on here? What's James's problem? Who's he aiming this at? Is he anti-business? Is that what's happening? Is James kind of anti-corporate? Has he just got it in for businesses and commerce? Is he, is he anti-capitalist? Is James kind of a closet socialist? Is that what's happening here? Is he, is he anti-profit? Is James got a problem with people making too much money? Is he, is he got a problem with the profit motive? Or is he just anti-planning, perish the thought? Is he anti-making plans and structures and planning for the future at all? What, what, what's the specific focus here? We've got to understand it because if we're doing the same kinds of things these people are doing and these people come in for a lot of criticism in Scripture, then, then what's the problem? What's James aiming at? And I think the answer is none of the above. He's not primarily concerned with these people making these business plans, making this money, or traveling here, there, or any. It's not the behavior that's the problem. There's something far deeper. James is not concerned specifically with the behavior. He's concerned with the worldview that's driving the behavior. He's concerned with something much deeper, a view of life, a way of living that sits underneath all of this for these people, and is fueling this kind of behavior. There's a worldview going on here. It's a worldview issue. And the best way I can describe this this worldview these people are buying into is it is the worldview of the sovereign self. The worldview of the sovereign self. And this worldview simply says that the individual self is completely autonomous over their own existence, and they are free to determine their own life, their own existence. You live a self-determined, self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-governed life. You call the shots. You make the rules, right? You're the captain of your own ship. You're the master of your own destiny. You don't conform to anyone else's expectations. You just live the way you want to live. The primary reference point for your life is you, It's not God, it's you. It's an egocentric life, a self-centered, self-driven life, not a theocentric life, a God-centered, God-driven life. That doesn't mean that you believe God doesn't exist. It doesn't mean you're an atheist. You don't have to be an atheist to hold this worldview, to hold this view. These guys in this passage weren't atheists, as far as we know. I mean, James is addressing these people, and the fact that he's talking to these people, he's writing to churches. So he's writing to people. These people are at least in church, so they're at least nominally Christian. And yet the way they are living, the worldview they're living out of, is this worldview of the sovereign self, where they are having complete autonomy, taking complete control over their own lives, and just living the way that they want to live. That's what James has got an issue with. It's basically functional atheism even though these people might call themselves Christians and be Christians at some level, practically, functionally, they are living as if God doesn't exist. They're living just without any regard for God, without any concern for God. They're just making their own plans, doing their own thing, just living an autonomous life. That's the issue. It's the self-determined life. Now, if that kind of thinking, if that worldview is present in James' day, How much more so in our day? I mean, this has become epidemic now in Western culture, this kind of thinking, this kind of worldview. We've seen over the last century the rise of individualism, where the individual is elevated now virtually to the level of a god. We've seen the rise of secularism, where Christianity is pushed out to the margins of society, pushed out of public spaces, pushed out of public discourse, And so now we have a society where one of the highest values, one of the highest ideals is the autonomous self, the autonomous individual. One of the most important things in our culture is that the individual is absolutely free to determine their own life and, and actualize their own unique identity in the world. We need to be free, free from institution, free from religion, free from our social constraints, free even from family sometimes. Free, totally free, totally unshackled by the world to pursue our own path, make our own choices, determine our own reality. This is at the heart of advertising and marketing. It's the messaging that we are getting all the time. Time magazine, 2007, it named the person of the year as you. Not one person, but it's a nod to the millions of people who use online platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and so on to express their own autonomous individuality. And the tagline of that issue was, you control the information age. And that word control is so appropriate in the age of the autonomous individual because it's about control. It's about you control your future. You control your destiny. You take the reins of your life. No one else is going to control it. The worst thing you can do in the age of the individual is give control to someone else, is conform to someone else's expectations, is allow yourself to be constrained by what someone else may think. You need to break out of that and you need to take control of your life and live your true self for the whole world to see. This is the age we're living in, a secular age, an individualistic age the age of the sovereign self. And I'll tell you what, this stuff is being bred into our kids, younger and younger and younger. This is just the air they're breathing growing up. I went to a prize giving a couple of years ago uh, for our oldest son, Josh, and he, he's just at primary school. I think at the time he was six, only his second year in primary school. And at the prize giving, uh, different groups of kids, the house groups, they stood up and sung a song, each of them. And one of the songs that one of the groups sung was a song called Hall of Fame by The Script. It only came out a couple of years ago. But let me just read you the song because I think it epitomizes the age that we're living in. Yeah, you can be the greatest, you can be the best, you can be King Kong banging on your chest, you can beat the world, you can beat the war, you can talk to God, go banging on his door, you can throw your hands up, you can beat the clock, you can move a mountain, you can break rocks, you can be a master, don't wait for luck. Dedicate yourself, and you're going to find yourself standing in the Hall of Fame. And the world's going to know your name, because you burn with the brightest flame. And the world's going to know your name, and you'll be on the walls of the Hall of Fame. And so we have now a generation of kids growing up thinking that they are at the very center of the universe. That everything and everyone else revolves around them. Rather than seeing themselves as part of an interconnected whole, Now they are the most important, they are the greatest, they are the awesome one, and it's not just important to be great, it's important everyone else knows you're great. This is the world that our kids are growing up in, this is the cultural air they're breathing in, this is the age of the sovereign self, where I am totally sovereign, I'm in the place of God, really, over my own life, I make the rules, I determine my future. Now, when we come to try and respond to this as Christians, and we ask, how does the the gospel respond to this? How do we engage with this as Christians? What James is doing in this passage is he responds at the level of worldview. That's why he's not as concerned with behaviors. It's not the specific activities. It's the worldview underneath that. And so he addresses this at a worldview level. If you want to engage with this, deal with it at the level of worldview. And so here's how James responds. He says in verse 14, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. See, James is saying, he's giving us a whole new perspective on life. He's saying, don't just change your plans. Change your worldview. That's where you've got to start. He's saying, we have this idea that we can control our own future. We have this idea that we can have autonomy over our own life. James is saying, you know, in reality, that idea of control is an illusion. That idea of personal autonomy that we clutch so strongly to, it's basically an illusion. James says, you don't even know what's coming tomorrow. What do you know about tomorrow? You haven't got the first idea what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, you've got some plans. I know you think you know what's going to happen, but really we have no idea what's coming down the track in our lives. You've got no idea what's going to happen to you when you walk out the door after church today. I know you think you know. But really, we don't. Your phone could buzz in your pocket right now with a text message that radically changes your life. Something happens, something changes relationship, health, finances that could turn your world upside down. I'm not trying to scare you, I'm just saying we think we have control. We think we've got autonomy. In reality, the number of things we can't control in our lives is far greater than the things we can control. And James says, if if you're not convinced by that, take another step back. Look at your life in the scheme of eternity. James says, what is your life? You're a mist. You're a mist. The word mist, the literal word is vapor or breath. You know, it's like on a cold winter's day, you breathe, you can see your breath in front of your face. It's not quite cold enough to be able to do that this year yet, is it? But you know those days and you just have that breath and you see it for a minute, for a second, and then it's gone. And James says, we've got to learn to see our lives the same way. You're a breath. We put all this effort into our lives. We get so worried about it. We get so anxious about the future. We're so stuck on our plans. We make all these plans and schemes and so on for the future. We have all these goals. And James says, don't forget, what is your life? It's a breath. That's it. And you're done. And then you're going to find yourself standing before the one who really determines what's going on. Then you're going to find yourself one day standing before the one who determines your life, who determines reality, who determines existence. And even if you thought you were living a self-determined life, one day you're going to get a huge reality check and realize there's another to whom you are accountable, to whom you owe your life. There is a God in heaven who breathed this world into existence, who gave you your life. For the short years that you've got on this planet, who allows you to take every breath just by his good pleasure, who one day is going to draw your life back, and then he's going to determine your eternal future. And your life now, my life now, it's just a drop of water in the ocean of eternity. Can you just think about that for a minute? We, we don't live with this perspective. We're so focused on the here and the now and the rest of the years of my life. But just think, your life is a drop of water in the ocean of eternity. This life is short. Eternity is a long time. So what are you living for? The drop or the ocean? Who's really in control? Is it you? Really? Or is it God? Is it the sovereign God? This is, see, this is the worldview shift that James wants us to make, is moving from the sovereign self worldview to the worldview of a sovereign God. That there is a God in heaven who oversees history. He holds our lives in his hand. He holds this world in his hand. He holds history in his hand. He holds the future in his hand. He is the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, almighty God. He's the one who determines reality, not You. He's the one who determines existence, not you. He's the one who determines the future, not you. And we've got to get our heads out of this self-determined life, the self-determined culture that we are being fed every day and reorientate our lives around the one who is truly at the center of the universe, not us, but God Almighty. That's a total paradigm shift. That's a worldview shift, even for Christians to make. I think we can still sit in church and sing the songs and confess Jesus as Lord, and yet we live this life that can be so self-determined. We can live this life as if God really doesn't exist. Our plans wouldn't change ostensibly if God didn't exist. We've got to begin with a different worldview, a theocentric worldview, a God-centered worldview. We take ourselves out of the middle. Everything doesn't orbit around you. It orbits around God. He's the center. He's the sovereign one. That's the worldview we need. And when you shift that worldview and you shift from a sovereign self worldview to a sovereign God worldview, it will change your life. It'll always change. Your behavior will always come out of your worldview worldview. The way we live will always emanate from the deep story that we believe about ourselves and the world, the worldview that we hold. That's why the worldview issue is so important. That's why we're focusing on it. When we have a a sovereign God worldview in place, things start to change. We don't live in such a way As to be completely autonomous or try to be completely autonomous or try to control everything. But we live in view of a sovereign God, the one who is truly autonomous, the one who truly has control. And we don't just live in view of the here and now, but we see our life as a vapor. We see our life as a mist. We see our life as a breath. And we start living in view of eternity and we invest in things that matter in eternity. And we put our resources into things that are going to echo in eternity, not just things that matter for now. And yes, it starts to change the way that we think about the future. It starts to change the way that we plan for the future when we have a sovereign God worldview in place. And this is where James gets to. He eventually does make it practical. He starts at worldview. He wants to get that piece in place first. But then he does get to practicalities. And he says, now here is what what does all this look like practically? What does it look like when you've got a sovereign God worldview? And then how do we approach future planning? How do we deal with the issue of planning ahead in life if we've got that worldview in place? Well, here's what James says in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. That sentence, that's like a mantra for life. That'd be a great sentence to memorize, write down, underline it. If you want a biblical theology of planning, this is where it is. The Bible talks about planning. And it's contained in that simple statement. That statement has three really important parts to it. They each build on one another. We need all three. Let me just quickly unpack it for you. Firstly, James says, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will. Now, that, I know that, that, can, that can sound kind of like a tagline that we just tick box Keep God happy if the Lord wills, you know, and and you make your plan, you make your 10 year plan, your 15 year plan, your 20 year plan, and then you just kind of bring it to God and say, Well, if the Lord wills, this is what I'm going to do. And it's just kind of a way of baptizing our own plans so that we can feel good about having ticked the God box, but we just keep on doing what we wanted to do in the first place, right? That is really just a thinly veiled form of self determination, isn't it? Where you bring your plans to God and just ask Him to rubber stamp them. Well, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Yeah, that's just a tag. That's just a bumper sticker. That's not real. This is supposed to be a life. This is supposed to be something that gets into our bones. God doesn't just want you to bring your plans to Him so He can rubber stamp them. God wants you to hand your plans to Him. God wants you to bring your plans, your future plans to Him, even before they become plans. He wants you to bring all of it to Him and lay it down. He wants you to bring all of your hopes and dreams for the future, all of those opportunities that sit out there ahead of you in every sphere of life, all the decisions, all the uncertainties, all the anxieties, all the future possibilities. He wants you to bring all of that. He wants you to place it on the altar. And He wants you to take your hands off it and say, God, this is yours. It's not mine. Change these plans. Delete, subtract Add, multiply, whatever you want to do. God, these plans are yours. They're not mine. And I want to be open to what you want. I want to acknowledge that your plans are not necessarily my plans. God may have plans for you that have nothing to do with what you are planning for your own life. Are you open to that? Are you available to that? Or are you just charting your own course and just trying to get God to bless it from the side? God says, I want you to bring whatever you're thinking to me and lay it down and offer it up to me and be genuinely open. To me, changing or even throwing out those plans and bringing something new into your life. I was talking to a Christian man a little while ago who's been a really successful farmer. And he said he's been a Christian most of his life. But he said, you know, he still got to the point of realizing at a certain point that he was not really surrendered to God. He was a Christian, but he'd still just been doing his thing. Making his plans, living his life. And he got to a point of of just coming before God one day and saying, God, if you want me to sell the farm, it's gone tomorrow. God, if you want me to sell the farm, I'll put it on the market tomorrow. And he was genuinely willing to do it. Are we genuinely willing? Are we willing to take those parts of our lives that we're clutching onto most strongly and put those on the altar? And say, God, if you want to take this away, take it. Are you willing to put your job on the altar, your career? It might be working really well and you're stepping through it and you're making all the right moves, but it's good. God's saying, I want you to put it on the altar. Are you willing to lay this down? Are you willing to take your, your finances, your future financial security, place that on the altar and say, God, this is, this is yours. Everything I have is yours. I want you to take this. I want to be open to what you want to do in my life, even if it looks radically different to what I want to do in my life. I want you, God, to be involved in all of this. I want you to be immersed in all of this. I want you to be so involved that the plans that I'm even making are plans that have you at the forefront of them and are made and done in ways that are honoring to you, not just me bringing my selfish plans and asking you to bless them. God's asking you to lay those plans down, whatever hopes and dreams you've got for the future. Are you willing to lay them down and say, God, this is just me, but I want, I want you to come. I want to know what, what, what you want for me. I want you to lead. I want you to guide. I want you to influence. I want you to pervade all of my future thinking, all of my future planning. I want to be totally open. Are you willing to do that? Those areas of your life you're holding on to so strongly. That's what it means to say, if the Lord wills. It's not a, not a throwaway statement. It's a posture of surrender. Is a posture of the heart where we are fully surrendered to God. And our most precious plans are laid down. And then James says, You ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live. I like the fact that he includes that little bit in the middle. We will live. The sentence would have made sense without it. He could have just said, If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. But he includes, If the Lord wills, we will live. And it's just a reminder, I think, that our very lives are in God's hands. That we, don't, we really don't know how many, how many more days we've got on this planet. We don't know how many more days we've got. We, we act like we're going to live forever. But you don't know how much time you've got left. We've had in the last couple of years a number of members of our church pass away, some in really sudden and sad circumstances. And it's just reminded us all, hasn't it, of how fragile life is, how fleeting life is, that life really is just a breath. It's just a vapor. And James says, don't forget that. That mindset will lead you, just whatever plans you make, to hold lightly. Hold them lightly. Hold your life lightly. That mentality should lead us to walk through this life with a certain lightness of foot, a certain lightness of spirit, because we recognize my very life is in God's hands. My days are in his hands. If the Lord wills, we will live. It's in his hands. And then finally, James says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, this is where us planners get excited. It's like James has come full circle now and he actually says, it's okay to say we will do this and we will do that. He does say that. He doesn't say, what you should do is just sit there and do nothing until God tells you to do something. You know, he doesn't say just kind of hang around and God's just going to lead you in this kind of nebulous way by His Spirit. No, He says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Those last five words are pretty important. And do this or that. It's okay to make plans. You know, Some Christians kind of live like they've got to wait for a sign from God before they do anything. We have a friend who used to be like this, and she, as a young adult, she, she was a Christian. She was a strong Christian, and she believed that before she made any important decision, she needed a specific sign from the Lord confirming this was the way to go. So she got engaged to this guy, this Christian guy, lovely guy, but she was paralyzed by fear because God hadn't told her that this was the one that she was to marry. He hadn't given her a specific sign, and she waited, and she waited, and she prayed, and she asked, and the sign never came. And so she broke off the engagement because she couldn't move forward without some writing in the sky from God. Now, thankfully, she's grown through that. She's gone on and, and matured, and she's, she, she married another wonderful Christian guy, eventually got through that, got past that. But, you know, it, that kind of thinking, the way that she was thinking earlier in life, it really doesn't square with what James says, he gives us permission. God gives you permission to make plans. It's okay. Now, if, it's, if you only take the last part of the sentence on its own, that's a problem. If you only say, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there, I'm going to start this business, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this. That's, a pro- that's just self-determination. The point is, it needs to come out of the first two phrases. That's why James writes this sentence in this order. If it starts with, if we're genuinely saying, if the Lord wills, if we're genuinely living in that place of surrender, where my plans are laid down. My plans are handed over to God. I'm totally surrendered to what He might want to do with my life, whether or not it looks like what I want to do with my life, if it's coming out of that mindset. And then we're saying, we will live, in other words, acknowledging my life, my very existence is in God's hands, then it's okay to plan. It's okay to plan for your future. It's okay to plan for the future of your business. It's okay to plan for the future of your your family, life, whatever it might be, as long as that is coming out of a sovereign God worldview, not a sovereign self worldview. Do you see the difference? These people James is addressing, the problem is not them traveling to this city or that. The problem is not them carrying on business. The problem is not them making money. The problem is they're doing it all with a sovereign self kind of view. But if we start with a sovereign God perspective and we are fully surrendered to him, James says, go ahead and make your plans. Hold them lightly. Make them prayerfully. Make them carefully. Surrender them to God regularly. But go ahead and make plans. It's okay. God's given you a brain. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given us community around one another to test ideas and seek confirmation. But we don't need to wait idly and passively for signs in the sky before we move forward in life. God allows us the freedom to move forward. And he guides us and he leads us as we go. That's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he Will direct your paths. It's okay to plan if it's coming out of a sovereign God worldview. So, I want to ask you just as we finish to think about your future just for a minute. You, I don't know whether you might be like me, you might be a real planner, you might be a structure person, you might have the whole roadmap for the rest of your life mapped out, or you might be a real free spirit. You might be totally, and you might think this doesn't apply to me because I'm just kind of one of these people, I just go wherever the wind blows kind of person, you know. This applies to you just as much because either of those types of people and every iteration in between can still live out of a sovereign self mindset, can't we? And maybe this morning you just see it more clearly than maybe you've seen it before that even though you're a Christian, nobody's questioning that, but even though you're a Christian and you have a faith and you love Jesus, you just recognize, you know, day to day, you're still just living a self-determined life. You're still just making your plans. You're doing your thing. When was the last time you really brought a big decision to God? When was the last time you really prayed about what was happening? When was the last time that you truly surrendered? You know, God brought me to this place again on Thursday night as I was going over this message, and just that sense of I need to, to hand this over again to God. I don't think it's something we do just once. I think God regularly draws you to that place of, you know, are you really willing to lay this down? Has this become too important? Has that achievement become too important? Has this life plan become too rigid? Have you squeezed me out? I had that sense that God was just calling me again to lay it all down, and I just handed elements and dimensions of my life all over to him again. God, I give you my health. I give you my body. I give you my relationships. I give you my future. I think I've got an idea of what's happening and where I'm going, but really I don't have a clue what tomorrow's going to bring. So I give it all over to you again. That's the place I think God's drawing you to of being willing just to hand your future to Him. Genuinely hand it over. Are there particular things today that you're still trying to control and saying, you know, I'm kind of handing all this over to God, but there's one area. Maybe God's just pressing on that one part of your life this morning. He's just putting His finger on something and saying, I want you to hand this over to me. This is not fully surrendered. You're just still doing what you want to do and you're just conveniently ignoring me along the way. I want you to bring that to the cross this morning. If God's prompting you, Bring that to the cross and lay that down before him and say, God, I just take my hands off this. This is yours. My life is yours. Every breath I draw is yours. I'm nothing without you. So take it all. Here it is. It's yours. That's the consecrated heart that God is looking for from each of us. And you know, the wonderful thing is when we come to that point of surrender, we can trust him with our lives because he's a good father. Because he knows you better than you know yourself. Because he sees all the days of your life stretched out ahead of you, even though you can't see a single one of them right now. Because he knows what is best for you, and he knows the plans he has for you, and you can trust him with everything. So may we say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Let's pray. And so, God, just in the quietness of our heart now, we we think about our own lives and we think about the days that we have left. We don't know how many there are. But we want to bring our future to you now, Lord Jesus, and lay it down at the foot of the cross. Father, we want to acknowledge you're the God who gives life. You're the God who takes life away. And we want to say, God, we're sorry for clutching too strongly the reins of our own lives Just trying to chart our own course in life, make our own decisions, make our own way in the world. And we come to you now, God, acknowledging that you are the sovereign God of eternity. That our lives are just a a speck in the whole scope of eternity. And we just say to you, God, that we want to lay our lives down before you, hand ourselves over. And we pray, God, that this wouldn't just be a one-time thing that you do in our hearts today, but that you would lead us from this day forward to live in view of your sovereignty and in view of your eternity. That as we navigate the future, Lord, as we make decisions, big and small, that affect our lives, that affect our future, that affect the lives of others that we love, we want to pray, God, that we would do it all with an openness to you, with malleable hearts, soft hearts that are responsive to the work of your spirit and open to your leading at every step of the way. We thank you that you are so good and we can entrust our lives into your hands knowing that you're a God who loves us and cares for us. Lead us to the cross and surrender, we pray today. For Christ's sake, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church.